0: Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Just before Mother's Day, I had a chance to talk with Rhonda Stoppy, who shared some principles that can help a mother be a no regrets mom. Then it's Jim and Lynn Jackson of Connecting Families, offering some insight into the messages that parents send to their kids through their approach to discipline. Also, you will hear from Wesley Bogus. She and her late husband both served in the military, and she discusses some lessons she has learned in her walk with Christ, through the military, and her participation in golf. And on this edition of The Intersection, you'll meet Dan Bennett of the American Center for Law and Justice, who presents some perspective on the search for meaning that people are pursuing and how their longing, our longing, can be satisfied in the King, our Lord Jesus. Then it's Al Parada of The Stream, who has a background in comedy and ministry. He gives analysis on how some comedians have crossed the line in their approach to politics. Finally, Mike Barry of First Liberty Institute, examining some of the potential implications of the president's executive order on religious freedom issues. This is The Intersection, of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Author and speaker Rhonda Stoppe has adopted the moniker of the No Regrets Woman. She's authored a book called Moms Raising Sons to Be Men and provided some words of encouragement for mothers and some of the issues they face. This is Rhonda Stoppi now.
1: Moms Raising Sons to be Men came out of the first time I spoke on the topic at a homeschool convention when my youngest son was going through junior high. And the book is for moms of, of really to become the mom you always hoped you would be. And it has parenting principles that... Um, just really things that I learned. In fact, women that I speak at, they see this and they say, oh, I wish I would have had this when my kids were little. Uh, But when I spoke at this homeschool convention, there were just tears in the eyes of the moms because they want, they understand the importance, they want to guide their kids to build a life with no regrets. And it's kind of a daunting task. And I think for moms of daughters, I have two girls and two boys. And as my daughters turned into women, I was it's a beautiful thing, but I wasn't in awe of it because it happened to me. It wasn't mystical or mysterious, but when my sons started turning into men, it was um, just almost like amazing. As you watch this little boy, you know, get the prickly face and, and all those things. But I knew when I was a mom, even when my kids were little, that I wasn't the mom I meant to be. I knew that I wanted to be that woman that, you know, didn't lose my temper, didn't count to three and and then finally count to 10 and, you know, But I didn't know what to do. I found myself, because I was more overshadowed by doing it wrong, I was putting out fires instead of wanting to guide them towards the life I really wanted my kids to have. So Titus too calls the older women to teach the younger how to love their husbands and love their children. And my husband was a youth pastor at the time, so I looked around at moms who had kids that still liked them when they were in junior high and high school, and I wanted to emulate their parenting. And I went to those women and I asked them to help me, to teach me what they learned about being the mom that I knew I wanted to be, but I didn't know how to get there. And that's really what Moms Raising Sons to be Men is. It's a personal mommy mentor. Imagine if you had—you know—you could just sit and have coffee with me every day and we could chat about the things that sometimes that I did successfully, sometimes I wish I would have done differently, but I don't know about you, I teach more passionately from my failures than I do from my successes. And the the main thing is we're not trying to raise perfect kids. We're trying to raise children who know how to recover from their mistakes. And that is the goal of, of moms raising sons to be men is to raise uh, godly people that know how to walk the, the normal Christian life, which is to seek the Lord. Uh, you know, if you kind of waver on some things, you you make a mistake, you ask God to forgive you, and you get back up, and you keep on pressing on.
0: So what are some of the things that really made the difference to you, those things that clicked, that you actually received from, from some of these people who you began to talk to?
1: One section in Moms Raising Sons to Men is called People Pleasing Isn't Pleasing, and I am a middle child. I am a people pleaser from the time I was born, and when I was uh, uh, in my daughter was about four years old. My um, friends that we had asked to mentor us and kind of pour into our lives, they had some amazing kids and were like, I want to know what you know. When one day their son, Adam, reached up to touch a little trinket at my mother's in-law house and she said, Adam, don't touch that. And she didn't even look at him to make him. She kept talking, like just hardly bat an eye. And he pulled his little hand back. I'm like, what would you just do? I need <laughs> to know how you did that. And one day, My daughter, who is about four years old, was skipping through the church after church was over, making noise, and I was shushing her, and I was getting irritated with her. And finally, Vaughn, the man, the husband, and the wife were standing there and and watching me do this, and he said, why do you care? And I'm like, well, I don't want her to, and do you you have a conviction you don't want her to make noise? Why? Why do you care? I said, well, no, and he kept pressing me until I said, because I don't want people to think I'm a bad mom. And he said, let me give you some really good advice. Never raise your children for what people think of you because you'll ruin your kids. And I know that if I had not had that word of wisdom in my life when my children were young, I would have ruined them because I would have wanted everyone to think I was a good mom by making my kids you know, dress and act just the way I thought they expected them to act. And what happens is we so often do that we tell our kids, you can't, you know, what if you don't do your homework, what you know what you're thinking is "What's your teacher going to think of me or you can't wear that to church, what are people going to think of me. And I, I found that Isaiah says God says I created you for my glory, Jesus said that we should do everything for God's glory and. We, when we are raising our kids for our own glory, we become glory-stealers. We're more concerned about how they reflect our character than how they reflect God's character. And that's what uh, to glorify God means, to represent His character so that it draws others to want to know Christ. So that was the, probably the biggest aha moment. And if your listeners leave with anything else today, is don't raise your kids for what people think of you – guide them towards a desire to glorify God in their lives, not to glorify you.
0: Rhonda stoppi here on The Intersection. You can learn more by visiting the website, noregretswoman.com. Well, The Intersection continues now with Jim and Lynn Jackson, founders of the ministry Connected Families. In our recent conversation, they shared information related to the book, Discipline That Connects With Your Child's Heart, Building Faith, Wisdom, and Character in the Messes of Daily Life. Here now are the co-authors. Jim and Lynn Jackson.
2: Where parents fall on that spectrum from sort of permissive to authoritarian, uh, we recognize there's all sorts of different parenting styles. For us, consistency became far less about your parenting style and far more about attending to what messages do your kids get from you when you discipline them. So whether you're taking the firmer approach or the less firm approach, are your children growing to believe, A, that they're safe with you, B, that they're loved no matter what, C, that they are called and capable, built as God's workmanship to do the works God prepared them to do, and D, responsible for the wrongs that they have made and, and responsible to make them right? And Lynn, let's talk about
0: this word discipline. I think you would have those that, in playing a little word association, would equate discipline with punishment. How would you, would you agree with that, or would you have maybe a different take on the concept of discipline?
3: I would definitely have a a different take. Sometimes it does obviously involve giving consequences, but the root word of discipline is discipline. Disciple or teach, and and you know te- help kids learn. And so we actually can't control another human being, but if we set out through our discipline to teach and train and build wisdom, that's what God is. I believe God is really looking for through our discipline. One of our favorite parenting verses is actually about John the Baptist, and um, it captures both parts of um, this kind of kind but firm discipline. And it says. Um, and he will come in the power of uh, spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to the children, so keeping that heart connected. That's the kindness aspect, um, um, and, and turn the the disobedient to. And you might think it's going to say to obedience, but it says to the wisdom of the righteous, uh, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So if we want to prepare our kids for the Lord. Um, for his coming in their lives. We will keep our hearts connected to them, and we will focus on growing the wisdom of the righteous in our kids, and I believe that's the heart of discipline. Mm -hmm.
0: Why now? Why is it after 20-plus years of coaching parents, did you want to release this particular book?
2: primarily because as we developed the outline of our way to help parents it became very clear that if we could write down these ideas that had proven to be super helpful for parents for christian parents to really discipline with authority not authority about behavior but authority about what their kids are coming to believe That if we could put all of that in writing, it would help a lot more parents because we hadn't seen anything like it in the marketplace. And we continue to be told that uh, this is a very distinctly unique way of thinking, especially about discipline, but even more broadly about parenting in general. What what messages uh, is the relationship of my effort as a parent communicating to my kids? And so the, the outline of our book, uh, or the outline of our coaching became the outline of our book, and Lynn and I aren't particularly uh, everyday writers, but we just couldn't, we couldn't help but feel compelled by God to put these ideas in writing and put them out there for the world to see.
0: Lynn, I'd like for you to underscore for our listeners the four biblically-based messages that you are desiring to communicate to children.
3: Okay, the first one, the starting place, is you are safe with me. And that's where I take my baggage as a parent, my judgments, my frustration, my anxiety, I understand it and work to set it aside. Um, The second one is you are loved no matter what. Because misbehavior is the golden opportunity for true, unconditional love. The third one is um, you are called and capable. And this is where I can find and build strengths in my child, even in misbehavior. Strengths to walk in God's calling in their life. The fourth one is uh, you are responsible for your actions to make right what you've made wrong by your misbehavior.
0: Jim and Lynn Jackson here on The Intersection. The website address is connectedfamilies.org. Well, this is the Intersection Podcast with Wesley Bogus. She formerly served in the U.S. Army, and her husband, Larry, also in the Army, lost his life in a mission in Pakistan in 2007. She shared with me some elements of her life and faith story related to her book, God Country Golf, Reflections of an Army Widow. Here now is Wesley Bogus.
4: This whole thing began actually as a journal. I was very lovingly encouraged. Um, to journal. Um, around 2010 is when I started. And, and a good friend said, just write down all the stories um, of your life with Larry so the girls could have this as a family treasure. And so I did. And then um, the completion of that journal, was it, it was huge. And it was wonderfully therapeutic. And my friend read it. And she said, this this has wonderful potential. You need to share this. and And it didn't take long for me to realize that um, Christian values and army values and golf values are very similar. And, and those influences had shaped my life and they really got me through, um, this grieving process. Um, and I just felt like that was worth sharing. And I also felt like, um, acts, um, 420 tells us, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard, and I felt like all of the lessons and, and all the experiences that I have been through over now the last 10 years um, are worth sharing, and I feel like if I if I kept all those lessons learned and those experiences to myself, then they're only helping me, and they're not helping anyone else, and so through this book, um, I'm basically opening the shade and giving the reader a glimpse of Army families um, using ourselves as an example, and how resilient and how giving and how selfless they truly are. And I think Army families, um, our service members, and the spouses and children, who who all serve to to provide the freedom that we all enjoy. Um, I just thought that would be um, a nice example of of the backbone of our country. And I, I felt like all those things came together. And gave me courage to actually release our story um, and let people um, let people in and let people feel what I felt, but also be encouraged because I was so encouraged um, by my faith um, by my army service, and by the influences of the game of golf
0: mm. Well, I wanted you to share with us maybe a couple of examples with respect to these values you mentioned that these three components God, country, and golf have some common values, some common principles. Please identify some of those those types of values that you talk about in the book
4: okay um, the The first two that come to mind in, instantly are integrity and respect um, again, you know. I was influenced by golf first, so my grandfather taught me that you respect the golf course, you respect your opponent and your fellow players and um, and then integrity. Um golf is a sport that you um, has so many rules and and it's just it's a sport that often you call penalties on yourself. And so um ha- living with integrity means you do the right thing, whether, Somebody's watching you or not, and so even if you're if you're playing with an opponent and and you try to hit the ball and you swing and miss, but your opponent didn't see you do it, you still did it, and you have to call that penalty on yourself. So um, so in the army, um, respect is given and respect is earned. Um, you respect your leaders, and um, your soldiers respect you by the virtue of your rank, but also um, you earn that respect from your soldiers. Uh, when you provide the example for them, and you show that that you care for them and you will lead them and and protect them um, and then integrity is the same in the the army of course, because our our word is our honor in the army, and we are you know absolutely expected to um, protect and defend um, our country and protect and defend our soldiers and obey our orders and and in our Christian life as well we we respect um, we respect the Bible. We respect the teachings. We respect each other as fellow Christians, and we respect um, all of God's children. And um, and then integrity. You know, the Lord expects us to be honest and um, and true to each other. So I just feel like certainly respect and integrity are a common thread um, that run through through. Each influence of God Country
0: Golf. Wesley Bogus here on the Intersection. You can learn more through the website GodcountryGolf.com. This is the Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of the Meeting House. Learn more through the website Meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section of faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House on Demand through which you can listen to and download full conversations from guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. Also, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered to your podcast-receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Than Bennett joined me recently on the Meeting House program. He serves as Director of Government Affairs for the American Center for Law and Justice. In our conversation, he discussed material relative to his book, In Search of the King, Turning the Pursuit of Meaning into the Discovery of God. This is Than Bennett.
5: I would just say, you know, if you look at it purely from a political space, if you look at the last several election cycles, I think you will see clear evidence that people on all sides of the political spectrum, all from all different sets of ideology, are really searching, Bob. They're searching for something that is eternal. They're searching for something that is lasting, for something that they can cling to. And, you know, I think in many ways, people on all sides of the aisle have wrongfully uh, clung to political power or a government structure for those answers. When, of course, you and I know it goes much deeper than that, but yet at the same time, uh, there are answers within a government structure that provide freedom for people to choose the king, that provide uh, freedom for, uh, to believe. And and I would just put it to you this way: if if you and I and everyone else were, were to withdraw from the political space, or frankly withdraw from whatever professional space you are in, and you know go to full time ministry or or full time uh, something that might seem like a more spiritual calling, that is going to leave that place that you are vacating. Void of a representative of the king, and I don't think that is consistent with the call of scripture at all. I would suggest that that you and I and, and everyone listening to you should take a look at the space that you currently oc- occupy and ask yourself the question how i how can I better represent uh the king in the space that I currently reside
0: there's a there's the whole cult of personality thing that's going on people are fascinated with with celebrities athletes you even see it within Christianity where people actually identify with certain Christian leaders or Christian musicians or or whatever even politicians become mm-hmm. those kings those celebrities whom we set up and look to for answers how do you how do you see that this can be something that is well it's destructive for for Christians to do that because we serve the one true King, but I think it does indicate that, that people are looking for others to, to satisfy their search for meaning.
5: I, I think you're right, Bob. And, you know, I would say a couple of things. Number one, I would say that I think all of us are hardwired with that void in us. I think, you know, we have, uh, you know, the world would call it other things, right? They would call it a search for meaning or a search for purpose. I sort of allegorically in the book call it a desire to associate with royalty. And actually, the first thing that I would say in response to your question might surprise people a little bit. I I would say that because it is hardwired in us, it's actually a good thing that it's there. I think the void was created inside of Aspire Creator in order for us to need him, in order for us to want to draw close to him, in order for us to not be okay without uh, having greater intimacy with him. The trouble, of course, comes, as you have rightly described, when we misapply it, when we apply it towards things that if we lay hold of it— they won't satisfy even if we achieve it. So the first thing I would say is to not try to kill off the desire, but to try to channel it. And then the second thing I would say, and it it ties right back into the first, is this book is not about calling out all of those things that won't satisfy if you achieve them. Bob, this book is about a call into what will satisfy. So you'll see very little focus in the book about those things that uh, maybe are on the right or the left of, of this journey that we're on. This is a book to get our eyes focused onto the king, to get us focused in in his direction and walking with him daily. It's not not something that's going to happen all at once, but Bob, if you get to the end of your day and you're one stride closer to the king king than you were at the start of the day, I would say that this book has accomplished its goal.
0: What do you identify in the book as being some of the dynamics of the relationship that we have with the king?
5: Well, you know, it, this is one of the things that makes the king so fascinating because he is the king of the world. He is all-powerful. He is uh, ha- has the power and the ability to uh, work through us that ex- exceeds any other power in the world. But at the same time, Bob, he has given us free access to him. And that's actually kind of the bridge, the nexus that I try to uh, that I try to connect in this book, because I think for so many people, he's one of two things. He's so distant, so powerful that he's not accessible. or, He's so accessible, so close, such a friend that we forget how powerful he is. And, and, and the message of the book when it comes to the king's power is simply look around at how that power is displayed. Bob, it's displayed through you and me. It's displayed as we tap into relationship with him, as we ask him where he would have us apply our lives. And then, yes, it's not our power at work, it's his, but it's only on display if we're willing to let it channel through us.
0: Dan Bennett here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website, than, This is the Intersection Podcast with Al Parada, managing editor of the Stream website. In our recent conversation, he shared comments related to an article he wrote about comedians and their treatment of President Trump. From that conversation, here is Al Parada. He
6: crosses the line, well, first, when the language is as crude as what Colbert used. Uh, that you start there, but also crosses the line when it crosses into m- malice. And what I would also say is that, as somebody who used to write comedy, the rule kind of used to be: is it funny? That's that was the bottom. That was number one. Now it seems to be the line is crossed where is it funny is not nearly as important as does it draw blood? Is it is it going to get intention? Is it going to get retweeted? Is, is the video of me saying all these horrible, nasty, crude things going to go viral? Is it going to help my ratings? That to me is where it crosses the line, it is when it goes from is it funny to did I, did I draw blood?
0: Mm. And what is very interesting is that now you have this rivalry between Colbert and Trump. In fact, looking at a Fox News piece here recently, Trump had told Time magazine Colbert was a no-talent guy, and there's nothing funny about what he says. He took credit for Colbert's improved ratings. And indeed, as Colbert has said, making jokes about you has been good for ratings. He said this on The Late Show last Thursday. He said that, you don't you know I've been trying for a year to get you to say my name? And he added, I. I won. So you've got a little rivalry going on, but but Colbert, it is true that his ratings have really gone up as a result of being insulting, but honestly, at what cost to the national conversation?
6: Yeah, yeah, what cost to the national conversation? Because you've been you've been given a platform to help bridge divides and to help make everyone feel, "Hey, we're all in this together." You've been given that. There's the cost to the national dialogue when you have the power of a national show to, to heal, to help heal through humor. But there's also, I think, as, as somebody who did this, there's a psychic cost to yourself. There's a cost to what you do to yourself when you peddle in meanness and hostility. It is easy, it is so easy to write jokes that cut people down. You can do ten jokes that insult people, and the time it takes you to come up with one that is sort of a positive um on the other on the bright side on the bright side this happened no it's it is so easy because it's part of i guess our the human nature <laughs> to be that we can do that and so when I talk about Colbert, but even be critical, I'm also speaking from experience in at myself you know his little speck on c b s versus my little my big old plank <laughs> from from so i can't i can't be self-righteous about it. I'm just aware of it, and I'm trying to share that with folks.
0: Something else that you point out in this piece is the furtherance of an agenda. Ellen DeGeneres basically has said, hey, the president, this guy, he's not coming on my show. And she said something to the effect of, well, I can't change his mind. So now is there a litmus test for being a guest on somebody's program that you have to agree with the host? I mean, is that where we're
6: going now? That appears to be the case. That appears to be the case. Uh, I mean, that shocked me. I mean, you know, you can have your own, whoever you want on your show, what's your show, but to sit there and say one of the reasons is I won't be able to change his mind, who, Excuse me. which is especially ironic given that Trump changes his mind the way Texas changes its weather a lot of times. Um, and uh, that was kind of a joke. Uh, but more seriously, it. from those who, who deal with the, pre- the president on a, a, a real basis – One thing they all say is that he listens. He will absorb absorb the information. He can be be moved by a persuasive argument. And and that is is the thing about the president that people don't really comment on, that he's a listener. So I think Ellen is shooting herself in the foot in a way, even talking about the political end of things. But the idea of closing your mind off, closing your show off to people who don't agree with you, that is for a daytime show, why what are you doing casting away half of the nation, a majority of the nation if you eliminate California and New York or LA and New York, why why are you basically saying to them that you're not welcome? Why should, you know, if somebody you voted for is not welcome, why would you be welcome as a viewer? It's lunacy. It's Mm. absolute
0: lunacy. Al Parada here on The Intersection. The Stream website is thestream.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Mike Berry, Senior Counsel and Director of Military Affairs for First Liberty Institute. He provided some analysis into the possible effects of the executive order on religious liberty that President Trump issued on May 4th. This is Mike Berry now.
7: Only time will, will truly tell uh, exactly how influential or impactful this executive order will be. But um, just in terms of as it's written, it has the potential to, to be a very powerful uh, executive order in favor of religious liberty in this country. I mean, it, it, it certainly declares in, in very clear terms that it is the policy of this administration and of the government to promote, to vigorously promote and protect religious liberty to the fullest extent permissible by law, uh, and then uh, you know I think the, the it does that in a number of ways. I mean, first of all, it, it directs the IRS to kind of ease ease the burden of of what's been known as the Johnson Amendment, and that is the the um, the provision of the IRS code that, that essentially threatens uh, churches and other nonprofit organizations with losing their tax status if they speak out on on issues that can be construed as, as, as political in nature. And so of course you know that, uh, that, that provision in of itself, even though it is written into IRS code, is pretty offensive to the First Amendment to think that a, a pastor is not able to speak from the pulpit of his church or, or, or religious congregation. On something that is, you know, written in scripture, and and maybe touches on, you know, issues of politics, because of course many things in scripture will will touch upon politics, and so um, to think that that pastor would then be at risk of, uh, or that church or congregation or religious organization would be somehow at risk of losing tax exempt status for that, is, I think, is it, it offends the First Amendment. Uh, so that, you know, that's a good – that's a positive step in terms of religious liberty. And then, of course, the next provision that, that uh, addresses the you – know, what's now known as the Obamacare you know, HHS mandate, mm-hmm. and that is that, that organizations are required to, to provide insurance coverage for all kinds of things, including abortion-inducing drugs, which many people and organizations find uh, offensive to their religious beliefs. And so this obviously directs the, the HHS to begin easing the burden of that. So, um, And then um, I think the, the, the piece that's probably most relevant to uh, folks in the military and perhaps many other people in the country uh, who are not directly affected by either the Johnson Amendment or the HHS mandate would be uh, Section 4 of the order, which directs the Attorney General of the United States to issue guidance that uh, interprets religious liberty protections within federal law in a manner that's, that's consistent with the, uh, the administration's new policy which is to vigorously promote and protect religious freedom executive orders by their very nature are limited in what they're able to do what they are able to do is is to give the president the ability which is exactly what he's done here uh, um, to the ability to direct the heads of the other agencies within the executive branch of the government and to tell them this is what my policy is this is what i want to accomplish And directing them to carry it out well that's exactly what president trump did Say it is my policy the policy of my administration to vigorously promote and protect religious freedom and then he turns right around and he says irs you're going to do this hhs you're going to do that attorney general here's what i want you to do um and and so that is an appropriate and an effective use of the executive order And as we were discussing, really that that Section 4 that directs the Attorney General, that's the one that could have really the far-reaching consequences uh, and and positive consequences for religious liberty because it empowers and authorizes and directs the Attorney General to go through all the religious liberty uh, uh, protections that exist within federal law and to say, okay, this is how we are going to enforce those religious liberty protections that exist in federal law. We now know what the president wants us to do. This is how we're going to do that. Uh, going to do that, and then the attorney general could issue that guidance that would then be available and binding on all the federal agencies. So that, that I mean, and of course, the largest agency, just in terms of the number of sheer number of employees, at you know roughly three quarters of a million employees, is the Department of Defense. So that that has the potential to have a huge impact. But again, I mean, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. We don't know exactly what that that guidance is going to be yet. We do know that the president has made it very clear he wants it to be vigorously promote and protect religious freedom. And we also know that Attorney General Jeff Sessions is somebody who has a track record for desiring to protect religious freedom. So, uh, all in all, I think it's a very I, I have a very optimistic outlook about what's going to happen.
0: Mike Barry here on The Intersection. The First Liberty website is first, spell it out, F-I-R-S-T libertyorg Well, we are nearing the end of today's edition of The Intersection podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. The website address one more time is meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link there to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. Also, you can get subscribed to The Intersection podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes each week. Two blogs are accessible, and you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.